0: The HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell.
1: And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And it's that time of year again. Merry Podmas, everybody. We are getting into Christmas film territory.
0: Merry Podmas, everybody. And for our first selection, we are taking a look at one of the many versions of Miracle on 34th Street. It's the 1994 version directed by Les Mayfield. Merry Podmas Haley,
1: Merry Podmas Darren!
0: Yes it's time to get into our Christmas selection of movies we're going to be bringing four Christmas movies and one new year movie to you over the next few weeks starting off with 1994's Miracle on 34th Street written and co-produced by John Hughes and directed by Les Merfield.
1: And full disclosure it's completely my fault that we are taking on this version of Miracle on 34th Street I remember this trailer being on the VHS for Mrs. Doubtfire when I used to rent it. And of course, because Mara Wilson, who stars in this, made her debut in Mrs. Doubtfire. And she is one of the childhood stars of the era I grew up in. So I remember watching this film as a kid. I'm not sure if it was a film that I particularly enjoyed, but I was curious to revisit it. So before we get into our usual discussion, I will read a synopsis from IMDb, just to give you a little bit of detail about this film, if you've never heard of it before, but I'm sure most listeners will have. The synopsis is written by Robert Lynch. Six-year-old Susan Walker discovers that dreams do come true if you really believe. She has doubts about childhood's most enduring miracle, Santa Claus. Her mother, Dory, told her the secret about him a long time ago, so she doesn't expect to receive the most important gifts on her Christmas list. But after meeting a special department store Santa who's convinced that he's the real thing, she is given the most precious gift of all, something to believe in. Do you believe, Darren?
0: I'm not sure I believe in the 1994 version. I believe a little bit more in the 1947 version. But we aren't doing a face-off, so it isn't 47 v 94. It isn't even 94 v 73. We are looking at the John Hughes-inflected version of it. And, oh, John Hughes's prints are all over this. It's got dodgy male characters. It's got sugary sentimentality. It's got a musical score that says cry here, laugh here, shriek here, feel the drama here. It's a big, loud family Christmas movie from the States. Not that there's anything wrong with big, loud family Christmas movies from the States because there are plenty of good ones. This one, for me falls into the gap between something that you'd want to have under the tree or something that you want to throw in the bin as soon as you take the wrapping off. It does have its moments, it does have some elements of grandeur, it's very nicely staged, there's obviously a decent amount of money got chucked at this, the settings are very nice, but there's something slightly off in terms of it capturing the magic, which I'm pretty sure that we're going to get into.
1: I'm completely with you there this is a film that signposts every emotion to you and even though it's a John Hughes production and you can tell it's just got his tone all over that it just doesn't feel as good as some of his other films namely the Home Alone movies it's just not a stronger Christmas movie as those movies are and it really does try to compare itself to Home Alone especially at the beginning because they have this little kid right at the start of the movie that's doing his best Macaulay Culkin impression and just like yeah I see what they're doing there they're really trying to repeat the success of what's gone by and it doesn't really work in this and you think considering it's already a well-known title they've got the plot laid out in front of them ready to go some of this film is rather odd some of the storytelling choices in this film is a little odd and I don't know how I really feel about it it didn't really give me all the magical Christmas vibes I just felt a little bit I don't know if unnerved is the right word by some of this film it's completely in an, an odd one and basically it boils down to a man who believes he's Santa Claus but he has no evidence other than He looks like the stereotypical image of Santa Claus. There's nothing else to do with that. And then the protagonists in this, they're pretty unlikable. There's the mother in this film. She has told her six-year-old daughter not to believe in the existence of Santa Claus. And I think that's rather harsh. Like She won't let her daughter experience that magic because she thinks that if you know the truth, you don't get disappointed. But if you believe in something, it turns out not to be true it ruins your life and I think that that is a woman with issues and I don't think she's a very good mother in this film and then there's this guy who babysits her child and we never really establish how they know each other I I mean unless I switched off which is possibly like that could have happened but I didn't really get the gist of how these two people knew each other how he became the childminder of the little girl But they're meant to have this sort of will-they-won't-they romance. And she's incredibly standoffish and icy towards him. He's a bit too full-on with her, and she's kind of told him she's not interested. But he just carries on to the point he presents her with a ring. He proposes to her, and they're not even in a relationship. And it was just all a bit much. And then the little girl has got this idea in her head where... She wants her mum and this guy to get together, and she doesn't just want that, she wants a house and a baby brother. I mean, this is what this child is asking for Christmas. She is so precocious, and you can definitely see why they cast Mara Wilson as Matilda. I think this is basically a pre-Matilda performance. It's almost like the same character to a point, but not as endearing. This child in this film is quite annoying, and I think the whole thing bordered on Hallmark territory for me. Like, It definitely felt like Big budget, but definitely hallmark principles going on here. Again, I found it all a bit strange, and especially Richard Attenborough playing Santa Claus. I'm not really sure what kind of performance he was going for, because I thought, is this a man, a lonely old man that we're meant to be feeling sorry for that he's lost the plot a little bit? It's just the grin on his face throughout the movie. Just something about it just felt very, very unnerving. Like, something isn't right here, and and the rest of the characters are just trying to humour this man just to reclaim a bit of Christmas magic. But then it just does go off into a bizarre territory by the end where I think it wants the audience to think, no, he really, really is Santa. They try and push that instead of leaving it ambiguous. The ending is terrible, but I'm sure we will get to that.
0: Yeah, I think the main problem with this movie is that it wants you to fall in love with all of its characters, but doesn't give you many reasons to actually fall in love with them. As you say, the two main protagonists, played by Elizabeth Perkins and Dylan McDermott, aren't particularly likable. Elizabeth Perkins has to be unlikable at the start because she has to go through this journey from non believer to believer by the end. So there's some mitigating circumstances for Elizabeth Perkins. Dylan McDermott, however, I know that his character is supposed to be a really nice guy and the screenplay falls over itself to tell you he's a nice guy and he doesn't do anything particularly evil in the movie, but he's very stalkery. He's always turning up where Dory, who is Elizabeth Perkins' character, is. And he just really forces himself on her quite a lot of the time not in a particularly aggressive way, but it's still weird behaviour. In
1: an emotional way, I would yes, say, isn't absolutely, it? Yes, absolutely,
0: absolutely. Em-
1: em- emotionally, not abusive to not that's the wrong word to say it, but manipulative. Yes. I think he's a bit manipulative.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Manipulative is a good word. And Dylan McDermott has got that kind of slightly edgy quality about him as an actor. So I'm not saying he's the wrong person to play this role. But all the time you feel that there's something going on in the back of his mind, even though there clearly isn't. But that sort of actor, he's got this edge to him, which doesn't really fit this movie. And he does try his best. And the performance isn't bad. He's not terrible in this movie. But all of the time I was thinking, has he got some sort of ulterior motive here? He just seems too good to be true. And then it's revealed that he's an attorney, and you think, oh, well, he's obviously a complete wanker if he's an attorney. But no, no, he's a good attorney. He's the nice attorney in New York. He's the one that defends all the people that don't get defended by the bastard attorneys. So it's really hammering you with this line that you will love all these characters, you'll love them. The daughter's going to be great because she says all these clever things, and she's wise beyond her years, and she has conversations with adults. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see somebody that precocious. It's annoying, as you said. It's not endearing. It's just annoying. When she's talking about the parade and saying that, you know, oh, well, I don't want to see people clearing horse poop up at the end. Well, yeah, it's a reasonably amusing joke. And I suppose the kids will get something out of having a joke about poo. But she has other conversations with Dylan McDermott's character, which most adults wouldn't have. And it just takes you out of the movie because. The kid is so bloody precocious that you just think, no, no kid behaves like this. Even one that's been brought up in the way that Susan has by her mother, even though she doesn't believe in anything and she's meant to be very, very practical and very smart. She's six years old, for fuck's sake. This is not going to happen. Now, I'm in two minds about Attenborough's performance because at the start, he's quite a jovial presence and he does look the part. And he does elicit the right amount of sympathy when you get to know some of the background details about his character and the fact that people are taking advantage of him. But as the movie wears on, he does have that weird glint in his eye and that weird chuckle that's kind of serial killer-ish. And you just think, actually, is this bloke a complete lunatic? I know you're not meant to think he's a complete lunatic, although the, the script kind of says, oh, well, is it just a guy going through some sort of mental trauma? while at the same time thinking, no, it isn't, he is Santa Claus, and we will hammer you over the head with this point that he is Santa Claus. But it's an odd way of looking at the guy's character. I don't think it's Attenborough's fault. I think it's more to do with the way that the script goes and possibly some of the direction. There are some things that are just laboured to the point of boredom in this movie, Certainly, the 1947 movie doesn't have as much of a romantic subplot. It's more naturalistic. It doesn't have that corporate raiding subplot where the uncredited Joss Ackland, who is the head of Shoppers Express, is trying to take over the nicer department store, which is Cole's, not Macy's. It's Macy's in the 1947 version of this movie. However, Macy's said, we've been portrayed... As a brilliant face of the American Christmas experience in the 47 movie, we don't need to be portrayed again. Thank you very much. So they couldn't use Macy's in the 1994 one. So you have this fictional department store called Coles, which is also a supermarket in Australia. But that's a completely different point. It's, it's a movie that I really wanted to like. At the start, I came in thinking, oh, it's a big American Christmas movie. I'm quite cynical. I'm not particularly going to like this. After about 15, 20 minutes, I thought, you know what? I might actually end up enjoying this. And by the end of it, I thought, "Ah, there's something missing in this movie. It's not terrible. I didn't hate it, but there is something missing. It hasn't got the heart that it wants to have. And there are too many characters as well. There's a waste of good actors. You've got James Remar, who is one of the evil department store's henchman. James Remar is a really good actor. Nothing to do here. He's just there to turn up in a couple of scenes, do some evil machinations on behalf of his boss. That's pretty much it. Jane Leaves, who is Daphne in Frasier, turns up, looks the part, looks quite evil with her severe corporate dress. But how many lines does she get in the movie? four five in the entire movie so hardly given anything else to do elsewhere you've got Alison janney turning up in a role that she absolutely bosses for one scene it is a role from the 1947 movie there is a very forthright woman shopping in the store Alison janney fills that role excellently the problem being that Alison janney is so good in that one scene you just think why isn't she in the rest of the movie it's that sort of film it's just full of weird decisions. There are some quite nasty moments in it as well, because to try and prove Kringle isn't Santa, the previous Santa who has been sacked for being drunk is paid off to go and basically abuse him on the street. And he's hinting that Kringle likes kids too much and that he's a sorry old cripple. I mean, that's really fucking nasty. This is a U certificate movie. In the UK, and to have that hint that Kringle might be some sort of paedophile, I mean, let's just make no bones about it. This is what the guy is accusing him of. In a U certificate movie, is that necessary? I don't think it is.
1: That's actually one thing that shocked me because after I'd watched that scene, I went on the BBFC website because I was just curious because I had it in my mind that it must be a PG because. I remember, obviously, Doubtfire was BG and it's probably on the same lines of the same studio, similar people involved, but I was really shocked that this film was a you. I U. I don't really understand how they managed to get away with that, considering what it implies, and I'm just thinking, you can imagine watching this film with your kids. They're asking, like, Mummy, what does that mean? What position does that put you in? How would you explain to your child that Santa is not a paedophile? Please don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that said, the whole wayward, drunk Santa sublock reminds me a lot of Look Who's Talking Now. And that only came out a year previously. Now, we spoke about Look Who's Talking Now last year in Mary Pondless. And as I say, this whole alcoholic Santa that's just taken the job for a quick buck at this time of year reminded me. It was just like the same plot. It was really weird. And I think it was just that there was just a trend in movies back then that you can just tell, oh, this is a 90s family, I say inverted commas, Christmas film. So the rating really interested me. And then when I looked on Rotten Tomatoes, it's rated PG. So I'm wondering, is that the US version? Because we both watched it on Disney Plus. Disney Plus have given it a 6 plus rating which I think is fair enough. I mean, a six-year-old could watch this. I don't know if they would particularly enjoy it because it's so slow-paced. I think that the problem I would have had watching it is it was heavier on adult themes, and I just don't think there's enough to grab a child's attention in it because there's a long portion of the film where it doesn't focus on Mara Wilson. like She disappears for a chunk of it. And then also the message in it is, I know it's if you believe, but it's like if you believe you can get whatever you want in life and, you know, you can make your parents do anything and that's not the right message to send to kids. You can't say to your parents, I want a sibling and it can just magically happen like that. Okay. So the ending we're going to go there now, because this is, this is the problematic ending. So the main couple get married in their normal clothes in a church after midnight mass on Christmas Eve without the child there which is really strange like there's no friends or family there cheering them on it's not really a proper wedding it's just like a just a formal marriage ceremony and then the next morning when they wake up the mother's ring is reflecting it's shining on the tree and then mara wilson's like oh my gosh you know and then suddenly they're driving to some house in the sticks And they get their dream home. And I decided to actually make the joke at the time when watching this. I'm going to pretend that they've just moved into murder house. (laughs) If you're an AHS fan, you'll get the joke. You'll get the reference. (laughs) And then it's implied like, oh, there's one more thing I wanted as she runs up the stairs and then says like baby brother. And then they look at each other as if, oh, that could already be on the way. This is one night. This is one friggin' night. By that point, I was like, right, I'm just glad this film is over now because what is this movie telling children? Very strange, and especially after you've seen the 1947 version and you say none of that exists in that film. I've seen a stage version of A Miracle on 34th Street and I remember really enjoying it and I don't remember any of this overly saccharine tone to it. I don't remember this over-the-top, romance in it I I remember it ending like they become a family which is fine that's nice you want to root for the characters but because they're written as such unlikable people and it's no fault of the actors at all they do their best with material but because that's the way it's written it just comes (laughs) off as as just very off-putting and I think that's the way to describe this film it's very off-putting from every element in it As you said, it started off okay, and I was like, hmm, I'm I'm kind of on board with this. And then it just plummets and plummets until you're just like thinking, what have I just sat through? This just feels like Hallmark. I can't differentiate this and Hallmark because I feel like I've had just the most weirdest shit thrown at me on screen in both films. like So in Hallmark films and this, so I just don't really see much of a difference.
0: It doesn't quite have the fun of Hallmark films either because the second act of this is quite depressing. Surprisingly so. It's really downbeat the second act because you get Elizabeth Perkins character rejecting Dylan McDermott's character's proposal and then she's crying in an elevator and then Chris Kringle gets committed and he's in the mental hospital and they're trying to get him out. And it really does throw the downers on you. To be perfectly honest, it did get me a little bit... I mean, it didn't get me to the point like a ghost was. It wasn't like 10 minutes of me sobbing uncontrollably in the cinema while people around me wondered what had gone off. It was just a bit of a pang. You know, the waterworks weren't turning on. But it's a surprising development in this sort of movie. You'd think that, yes, there's going to be some conflict, but you don't think it's going to be quite as doom-laden as this. And there's discussions about the nature of belief and faith, which... Yes, I accept that that is part of the plot, but it weighs this movie down. It should be lighter. It should be a bit more joyous. And there's this undercurrent of darkness that's dragging it down a bit. Usually, for me, a horror fan, undercurrents of darkness are fantastic. But in movies like this, they don't belong. It's a Christmas movie. You're meant to feel good about it. But for a good portion of the second act, you're thinking oh my God, where's this going? Everybody's in a terrible mood and they're all having a go at each other. The star's under threat because everybody's now turning against it because their previously angelic Santa figure might be a bit of a lunatic. So you get this really weighty second act that just doesn't fit. And you're right about the 47 movie. It doesn't have all of this baggage weighing it down. You don't have this tedious romantic subplot. It's more natural about how the two of them get together and they don't have that ridiculous marriage ceremony at the end. And even the bit in the house at the end of the 47 movie, it's done in a more subtle way, it's done in a more organic way. This, they drive past an amazing house and then somebody tells Dory, Elizabeth Perkins' character, oh you're going to have a huge bonus so you'll be able to afford this house. Good God, what sort of bonus did she get at Christmas that she can afford a house? Let alone a house of that size and opulence. It's that sort of ending where you just think, really? I mean, are you gonna end it like this? I don't buy any of the ending. I don't buy the way they get together. I don't buy the way that it neatly ties itself up. Also, the thing about already maybe having a brother on the way, all I can say is this movie is a warning. Beware Dylan McDermott's jizz. It's that powerful.
1: <laughs> and again, if you've seen AHS Murder House, you know. <laughs> if you, yeah. know, you know. This was actually reviewed at the time and described as curiously depressing. And I do think that that is a great way of describing it. It's curious enough to watch it as I was wanting to revisit this, thinking how would I feel about this movie as an adult. Considering I wasn't 100% if I completely enjoyed it back in the day, I realise why. It's way too long for a family film. An hour and a half is the limit, I think, especially if this is intended to watch with children. They have short attention spans. We just don't need a two-hour epic of this plot. It could have just been done and dusted a lot sooner. And then the court scenes, they drag on. I mean, there are several court scenes, and it's just really uncomfortable viewing because it's trying to prove that this man is Santa Claus. And it's the point where you don't know whether to laugh or cry. And especially because I crack up every time I think about this now, they talk about the military going to the North Pole and prove is there a Santa Claus. Are there any workshops? Do they see any elves working on toys? Like, how does this all work? And Chris Kringle happily responds to this by saying... Of course you wouldn't see my workshops. They're invisible. They're not in the real world. They're in the dreamland. And I mean, this is a guy trying to prove that he is legit and comes out with something as insane as that. You just think, how are people accepting this? I have to say, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, I don't think this man is very well. Someone needs to help this man. But they're just indulging him. And it's really disturbing viewing. And I know I shouldn't probably be thinking that. And I don't know if the film intended it to come across that way. But it really, really does. And then they bring a reindeer into the courtroom as well. He has to prove that so the reindeer can fly. And then he's like, oh, no, he can't fly now, only on Christmas Eve. And you're just like, Jesus, Jesus Christ. It would have been better if they'd actually done it where he was magical and he made the damn thing fly if that fucking ranger flew around the courtroom with like sparkles around it, then great. Fairy dust helping it move. That would have been fine. I think it it just didn't know what it wanted to be. And it can't just do all that and then get to the ending where the little girl gets everything she wants courtesy of Santa Claus. I just don't buy it. I really don't buy into this film at all. It's a shame because it's got good potential and I think I will go and watch the 1947 version At some point, just to cleanse my palate of this and actually see it done decently. I think that's what I need to do. This was one that was overshadowed by the superior 1994 Christmas family film of that time, which was The Santa Claus, which I personally believe we should have done that instead of this, but I wasn't allowed to for reasons I cannot go into.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what the reason is, because it's fucking Tim Allen, and I cannot fucking stand Tim Allen. So this is why. I don't mind that his movie was a success. It's absolutely fine that they made more money than Milliculate on 34th Street, as long as I don't have to watch his ridiculous mug on screen. Let's get that out of the way. We will never speak any more words of Tim Allen on this podcast, apart from the next time you mention a Tim Allen movie and I start ranting again.
1: Or if he was up for casting in something. Yeah. Because he has been put up for everything,
0: Yeah, Absolutely. He's always on the casting list for absolutely every movie we seem to cover. Like Charlie's Angels. Oh, who's going to be one of the angels? Oh, it's Tim Allen. Barbie. Who's going to play Barbie? Well, Tim Allen could play Barbie. Anyway, (laughs) enough of Tim Allen. The bit with the reindeer, yes. If he'd have made the reindeer fly in the courts, the movie would have ended 20 minutes early and we could have all Been here saying, well, at least the movie was 90 minutes instead of 114, which it isn't, unfortunately, it is 140. Also, at the end of the court case, it's got that trope in uplifting feel-good movies that I absolutely cannot stand. And it's dramatic over-the-top cheering. So the courtrooms cheering, there are people in the streets cheering. Everybody stopped their cars on the bridge to cheer as well. New Yorkers cheering like that won't happen. New Yorkers are far too cynical to do anything like that. If you said, right, everybody stop the cars, we're going to cheer for Santa Claus, most New Yorkers would go, are you out of your fucking mind? And I know that you're meant to feel good at the end of the movie, but you can feel good without these big scenes of people performatively celebrating something that they know nothing about idiots in the street just like yeah yeah what oh god god please stop this sort of stuff in movies you can portray joy and victory without having hundreds of people shaking hands and hugging and cheering for almost no reason whatsoever this sort of things ought to be stopped they ought to be a board for movies and as soon as this comes across there desk and they see this scene they ought to write back to the filmmaker and say right this comes out of this movie this gets taken out of this movie and you put something that's more worthy as an ending right now i've got time to take a breath this is the thing about this movie it shouldn't be making me this annoyed this movie but it does because it drops the ball so badly in the second half and all this stuff that they think is whimsy is either really badly put together or just disturbing. The courtroom says this, you're supposed to think, oh, you know, he's playing the lawyer. Isn't he funny? He's not. It just gets more and more creepy and disturbing as it goes along. And as for the way that they resolve the court case, yeah, I kind of get it. And there's this whole thing about there's a dollar bill with In God We Trust on the back. And the basic premise is, well, if we can trust in God, Why can't we trust in Santa Claus? It's a decent argument, I have to say. But would a judge accept that as an argument? He seems to accept it very, very quickly saying, well, you know, we take it on faith that God exists. Can't we take it on faith that Santa Claus exists? Now, I'm sure that there must have been somebody in that courtroom who was quite a strong Christian who probably was thinking about standing up and saying, hang on a minute, are you comparing God with Santa Claus? Fuck you, judge. I've been going to church for years, etc., etc. That doesn't happen in this movie. There's no fundamental Christian protests outside the courtroom where they say, we've had our God compared to St. Nicholas. The rest of it is 10 minutes wrap up of the characters all getting what they want and Santa is supposedly overseas somewhere. Ha ha, yes, he's Santa Claus. He's flown off somewhere, hasn't he? The ending compared to the 47 one is, perfunctory to say the least I got to the end and I just thought oh fuck off really <laughs> fuck off I mean I shouldn't be telling you you rate a movie to fuck off but I actually did and that's only on your...
1: HD. yeah
0: exactly <laughs> kids movie I'm saying oh fuck off it's... I don't know I'm just so disappointed in this movie because everything is pointing in the direction that it's going to be good it's got a decent budget behind it. It's got good actors. John Hughes has got some pedigree as a writer and producer. It's based on a classic Christmas movie. I know why they did some tinkering with it to bring it up to date, but the tinkering that they've done with it adds nothing to it at all. It takes away the magic from it. And weirdly enough, the 47 movie is far less sentimental than the 94 movie. The 94 movie is just bashing you over the head with sentimentality the 47 movie just breezes along and says right you know you can make your own minds up about this it's done with a very light touch the original one the 73 tv movie which i would recommend nobody sees because it looks cheap it's a rip off of the original one it's got some very weird casting in it the male romantic lead is creepy as fuck you want to be terrified and you want to think oh my god is this guy a romantic lead where did they get him from Watch the 73 movie, but there's no other reason to watch the 73 version of it. Apart from Roddy McDowell is quite good, but there's no need to watch it. It's possibly the worst one of the three. And that's saying something just because it looks so cheap and it feels thrown together like a lot of the American TV movies were at that time and it feels unnecessary. At least the 94 one is trying to do something a little bit different. It's got a couple of extra plot wrinkles, which don't work, but at least it's trying something different. But I have to say, if you're putting me on the spot and saying, which one of the three would I go back and watch? It's always going to be the 47 one. It's so much better. It doesn't hang about. It doesn't have that ridiculous ending to it either. It's got... Maureen O'Hara in the Elizabeth Perkins role. And Maureen O'Hara is much less abrasive. Yes, she's still a strong female character. And at the time, there was a bit of controversy because she was playing a divorcee. There was a group in America called the Legion of Decency. I mean, what a ridiculous name for a group. The Legion of Decency came down on Miracle on 34th Street because Maureen O'Hara was playing a divorcee and they didn't like that. That was morally dodgy at the time. It's made nothing of in the forty seven movie, it just happens to be a factor for her character. She's really good in it, and everybody else plays off her and the casting's really great in the original one. Not saying that the casting isn't good in the 94 one, but as you say, they've not got a lot to work with. And eventually the approach that the 94 one takes just derails it. The second half is just a real slog to sit through.
1: And when watching a family-based Christmas film, you shouldn't feel dead inside by the end of it. And I think that's what this film achieved for us both. Another thing I found really interesting about it, one of the facts of this movie, there's not an awful lot about it out there. Like, I'm not even sure why it was specifically remade. They don't say what possessed them to remake this film, why it needed an update. I'm surprised they haven't actually tried to remake this again for an even more modern-day audience, where it has aged, and this is very sad and cynical for me to say, but when all the children are sitting on Santa's knee, can't do that anymore. And to be honest, the whole concept of it was, I, I can understand why I probably never liked visiting Santa when I was a kid, I do not want to sit on some old guy's knee. Just putting that out there. We are a safe distance from Santa now. We can still experience the magic, depending if the Santa's a dodgy drunk or not in a costume, but that's besides the point. But what I found really interesting about this, 20th Century Fox offered full refunds to people if they did not enjoy the film, and approximately 1,500 tickets were returned to the studio. Why were they trying that experiment? Did they not want to make money? No wonder the Santa Claus bypassed this in the box office. But yeah, I've never really read that about a film before, so I thought that was quite interesting as to why they Wanted to give people the choice to say no, didn't like this film, want my money back. But even if you did like it and you knew that you had that option, of course, you might say, Oh, you know, yeah. especially if you live where I live, people are just uh, well, I'm sure you know the law about Yorkshire people as well, They're very tight with money. So I think we both come from regions of that mentality. So, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, there's a bit in the movie where the marketing ploy for calls is that. If you can find it cheaper in another department store, they will point you in the direction and tell you where it is and tell you how much it costs. So there's that weird kind of marketing element that they use as a ploy to weirdly sell more stuff. And it does, it works because people say, well, if you're going to be honest about it, I'm going to spend more of my money here. Now, whether or not that's true or not, yeah, that's open to question. But maybe Fox were thinking, oh yeah, we'll do something weird with the marketing. Let's just say, if you don't like this move, we'll give you your money back. And of course, people are going to say, well, actually, it wasn't a bad movie, but hey, I want the ticket price back. So yes, 20th Century Fox, I'd like my money, please. I mean, I wouldn't ask for my money back because, I mean, if you're going to sit through films from start to end, you know, you've paid your money and it's, it's your own responsibility. I would have been thinking if I'd have been of a different mindset, I probably would have been asking for my money back, especially with the second half of this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a disappointing experience especially if you've seen the 47 one, because it just doesn't capture the magic. And there's too much nudging in this movie. There's too much nudging to say, you're supposed to feel upset here. You're supposed to laugh here. You're supposed to feel the drama here. You're supposed to feel the tension here. You're supposed to be joyous here. Isn't the ending amazing? Everybody gets what they want. Well, no, you can make up your own mind about that. You don't need somebody standing over you, pointing at you saying, laugh now, cry now. Isn't this amazing at the end? You know, Susan's got everything she needs. She's got the expensive house for a mum. She's got a dad. Dylan McDermott, with his incredible potency, he's her dad. Forget getting near Santa. Don't get near Dylan McDermott. 200 women pregnant just from Dylan McDermott walking past them. All of that's happening. She's got a brother on the way. And it's right. It's that weird thing. It's like, oh, if you believe, you get everything you want. That is not a message that you want to put out there. If you believe, yeah, Fine, good things might come your way, but you don't get everything. That's not how life works.
1: No, and she's so smug about it as well. The child is so smug about this whole thing. And where she gives a really sweet performance in Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda, she's fantastic in, and that's an iconic performance. And yeah, she's meant to be precocious in that, but in that film, it's very different. She doesn't come from a place of privilege in that, and she finds her own happiness, and she's really sweet in that as well. But in this, The writing for this character, just no. That is not a very likable child. That is a spoilt brat. But then it is the fault of the parenting because her mother did strip away all the magic from her life. And I thought that was a very selfish character. Very unlikable characters, as we've said. So going into the ratings, it has a 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb. And heading over to our Tomatoes, it has a sixty percent tomato meter and a sixty-two percent audience score, and it's also telling me that if I like this movie, I may want to see The Muppets Take Manhattan, Fairy Tale, a True Story, The Tigger Movie, and the original Santa Claus, not the Tim Allen version.
0: Oh, Santa Claus, thing. Santa Claus, the movie.
1: Yeah, so that's what it's recommending for me. I mean, I I, sure I, I
0: wouldn't recommend Santa Claus the movie to anybody. To be perfectly honest, I mean, The Muppets Take Manhattan, it's not really on the same level, apart from the fact that it's set in New York. And The Muppets Take Manhattan isn't fucking depressing in the middle of the movie either. If you did like Miracle on 34th Street, the 94 version, here, have some Ingmar Bergman. That's kind of on the same depression (laughs) level, so get some Swedish doom into your life after this. Yeah, I mean, the ratings, I think, it's one of those movies that, a lot of people are going to love just because of the setting and it will remind them of a time in their lives and it's a holiday movie.
1: Nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and,
0: and a lot of people like Richard Attenborough's performance because they say, oh, he's cuddly and he's lovely and stuff. Now, we've gone into the other side of the performance, which may be slightly less cuddly and lovely. <laughs> I wouldn't have a go at somebody for loving this movie. I just don't. That's the problem.
1: Yeah, likewise. I was quite disappointed in this and I definitely picked the wrong version to cover. So I'll do better next time.
0: Actually, it's a more interesting discussion, though, because I think if we'd have got to the end of the 47 one, we'd have gone, yeah, it's pretty good this, yeah, end of discussion. At least with this one, we've had some more meaty stuff to talk about rather than say, oh, it's a nice old movie full of nice little characters and it's nicely wrapped up at the end without hitting you over the head with it. At least this, it's like, It's big. It's loud. It's bombastic. It's a bit idiotic. It does some very strange things. There's some weirdness in that courtroom. There are characters all over the shop. It doesn't know what to do with half of them. The cast is too big. Joss Ackland is uncredited. I mean, I know that he doesn't appear a lot, but he isn't in the credits. I don't know whether he just thought, well, I'm only on for a couple of days. I wouldn't really want to appear in the credits. Or maybe he just thought, yeah, this is crap. I don't want to be on the credits of this. I don't think it's the latter because it's a reasonably well-regarded movie despite the fact that we've been trashing it for the last 40 minutes.
1: And I mean, it's the start of Mary Podmas and we've already been discussing does Santa Claus have sinister intentions? This is laying the groundwork. I'm hoping that what's to come will be an improvement on this. But yeah, we've had some very un discussions, I feel. We're not as uplifted yet. We're not feeling the excitement just yet with this movie but you never know next time might prove us wrong
0: i do wish we could chat longer and that's it for episode 117 of the hd movie podcast as always thank you for listening
1: and if you enjoyed this episode and would like to keep up with Murray podmas as well as check out our previous episodes and just generally keep up to date with what we do you can follow us on social media we're on facebook x and instagram at hd movie podcast
0: Our second Merry Podmust selection is a visit to the well that is Hallmark. Yes, we're going to do a Hallmark movie for Christmas. It had to occur at some point, and it's going to be next time. And we are going to be covering A Boyfriend for Christmas.
1: Dear Lord, that's all I have to say. I think it might be an entertaining one. If it's not entertaining, I'm sure we'll make it entertaining somehow, like we always do. So... Stay tuned for that one, and hope you're having a great holiday season so far.
0: Hopefully. There might be some scary faces in there as well, but I don't think so. I think the scary faces are reserved for a particular corner of the Hallmark-esque empire. Until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Haley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and PodBeat.